The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Ask a Leader, the February 5th, 2013 edition. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Both of the interviews today that you'll hear were recorded last week, and that may prove to be a somewhat uh, topical due to the um, unfolding events in Israel. My first guest today is Alan Elsner, Vice President for Communications of J Street, the Progressive Voice of American Jewry, active in politics in America, watching what's going on in Israel. That's the guns part, and the butter is my second guest today, Rachel Klemick, the proprietor of Black Market Bakery. She's going to talk about how it is to continue running a business and expand a business and tell us how it all works with the Kickstarter financing. That and all will be back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest in this part of the show is Alan Elsner, Vice President of Four Communications at J Street, the progressive voice of American Jewry established in 2008. Street, uh, J Street's a nonprofit liberal advocacy group based in the United States whose stated aim is to promote American leadership to end the Arab-Israeli and Israel-Palestinian conflicts peacefully and diplomatically. Alan Elsner, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen is J Street's latest hire from a centrist pro-Israel group and probably the highest profile. As a 30-year veteran of the news business with the Reuters covering stories ranging from September 11, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and in conflicts in the Middle East to the presidential elections and the end of the Cold War and most recently the executive director of the Israel Project. He comes to us today from La Jolla where he's on tour of... Uh, managing various functions for J Street, standing in for some other things that we're going to talk about, uh, like the uh, the gatekeeper filmment, etc. Uh, he a great deal is developing as we pre-record this interview for later broadcast. We're very fortunate to have this veteran reporter with us on Ask a Leader today, Alan Elsner. Welcome to my show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, let's first talk about your appointment. How is your fit at J Street working? You've made a transition from being a career journalist, investigative reporter, to becoming the lead spokesperson for a, a progressive American uh, movement uh, organization. How, what is the fit like? How are you doing with that transition you're making? Well, I'm very happy with it. I, I feel pretty good about it. Um, you know, it's a good ideological fit for me. It's very liberating to be able to speak my mind and to be in an organization which thinks the way that I think. And, uh, you know, one of the, uh, there are things about journalism that I miss, uh, obviously, but um, basically uh, when you're a journalist, you keep your opinions uh, to yourself and try to reflect all sides of the issue. 
and now I'm finally free to uh, speak my mind. So in that sense, I'm, I'm very happy about it. And that's what you've been able to do, sort of rally the, not just the troops, but you've been able to help uh, bring people on board, especially uh, right out after the Israeli election. And that's what I'd like to talk about next, is uh, the polls were certainly uh, predicting that Netanyahu would do pretty well, and he was, uh, he, they were all surprised with the, the in fact, the um, inroads that the Yesh Hatid party had made with Yair Lapid, the, uh, the, what is it, the media mogul that he is? Um, what? Uh, not a media mogul, you know, a former journalist, um, anchorman on uh, on a TV station, uh, but certainly not a mogul. Um, I think that, you know, the polls had been indicating uh, consistently that uh, Netanyahu's party had been losing ground, but I don't think anyone saw the uh, the way that the, um, as you call, Yeshatid, which means there is a future uh, centrist party, was able to score such a huge success and emerge as the second largest party in Israel. I don't think anyone really saw that coming. Well, what little I have heard uh, about the, with the Yeshatid representatives after the results were finished and final, um, I don't know how much of the two-state solution were they directly addressing in the campaign, uh, or were they uh, being sort of vague about that, just being an, an alternate voice uh, looking into the future? The Israeli campaign was fought mainly on uh, domestic issues, and uh, Yael Lapid's uh, program was very heavily weighted to the idea of um, economic justice and of um, fairly carrying the burdens of being an Israeli. So one of the things he's insisted on is that the um, sons of the ultra-Orthodox should do national service the yes. same as other Israelis. Right. Um, but since the election, he has made it clear that one of his conditions for joining the coalition is that uh, the government recommit itself to the two-state solution and re-engage in negotiations. And, of course, we're very encouraged uh, to hear that. And uh, we think it's high time that Israel did re-engage. We also think that it's time for the United States and President Obama to show some really bold and determined leadership on this and to get the parties back together. So we'll be waiting anxiously to see what uh, Secretary John Kerry does now that he's been confirmed We'll be anxiously waiting to see what the president says in his State of the Union address on February 12th. And we're certainly uh, hearing encouraging signs both from the administration and from uh, Israel. So we think that after uh, two years of very frustrating deadlock, there is in fact now a new opportunity to make a fresh start. And that's what we are working um, our hardest to try and make happen. Well, before we go all into uh, the American side of this uh, discussion and uh, the nominations and the, uh, the, the appointments and that kind of thing with the Obama administration, just to look at, um, is um, Yaif Lapid, is he the, mo the preeminent sort of opposition voice to, the, um, to Likud or uh, with Zippy Livni, um, who is, who's broken away from the Likud, correct? Uh, it, it, she, she didn't have as many seats that she, um, her party uh, won, but is she still a, a, a voice to be reckoned with? Well, I think that, you know, the fact that she was able to come into the campaign relatively late and still win, uh, I think, six, six seats, six seats yes. um, shows that she certainly has um, some, um, some personal... Um, uh, following in, in Israel, but uh, she actually won the most seats in the last election uh, four years ago, 
so this is a um, a very sharp decline from in strength for her. Um, she led her party into the opposition, but they were not able to be a credible opposition and speak with a with a strong voice in in opposition to the to the government. And I think she paid a political price for that. Um, I think that you know she has a part to play in the future, and you know she may well be in the next coalition. But uh, she's been um, totally overshadowed by Lapid, and in fact by the Labour Party as well, which is the traditional um, opposition or government party, one of the two main ideological streams in Israeli politics. Uh, and the Labour Party also increased and went to 15 seats. Now, they said they're not going to join the government, so they will be the, uh, the main opposition voice in, in the um, years ahead. Um, and they will also be fighting for social justice and also for uh, peace moves, and we hope that, that they can play a constructive role in keeping the pressure on the government. And is is the redistribution of wealth, and you tell me maybe this is going a little too far, but was it one of the discussions in the domestic issues in the Israeli elections? I don't think it's a question of redistribution of wealth. I think that there is a, a sense in Israel that the burdens are not being... Um, fairly shared that um, one segment of society is uh, doing all the work and producing all the wealth and the other segment, in, and I'm referring here to the ultra-Orthodox, is actually consuming um, uh, a lot of the wealth that they're not producing and, and it's time for that to end. Now obviously in uh, Israel in recent years there's been a terrific uh, high-tech boom and some people have gotten very rich but the middle class as a whole um, has struggled a bit. I should add that the situation in, in Israel is, is not anywhere near the crisis that they have in places in Europe with, like uh, Greece and Spain, where they're very, very high unemployment and a kind of sense of hopelessness around uh, about the future. That's really not the case. But in Israel, there's always been a um, an ethic of sharing the burden, sharing the burden of military service and defending the country, sharing... Um, the burden of a relatively high tax rate, and, and, and sharing in the rewards of the society as well. So uh, I think that this is a good reset to get back to that ethic, which is a, was a positive thing. Um, now, we at J Street don't take a role in Israeli internal politics at all, so we're just observing it from the side, the same as everyone else. Our interest is in pursuing this, the peace process. Yes, the two and, states. Uh, we're an American um, you know, organization, and, uh, and and so our activity is really geared to um, trying to persuade the the administration and the Congress that this is the right time to relaunch the initiative, that it's in U.S. national security interests as well as the interests of the region, and that time is running short because the option of a two-state solution, that is a Palestinian state to be established alongside Israel, right. is running out um, uh, with every year that passes, more settlers move into the territories. It becomes harder and harder. So we think that this is the time uh, right now uh, in the first year of the Obama administration, not waiting until he becomes a, a lame duck, but waiting, but, but striking now when, when his political capital is at its greatest. And, um, and all our work is really geared to trying to persuade him that he has the backing of the American people of the American Jewish community, and that we have his back, and that we will support him, and we will be there for him, and and so that's where uh, all our efforts are, are are directed right now. Well, and then to transition then to the the uh, domestic 
elections and politics of this country, J Street did very well with the horses that you backed in the American congressional races. So congratulations. That was happening just before you were just appointed last, uh, was it this last December, January, the beginning of January uh, to your appointment at J Street, correct? Right. I came on board in uh, the beginning of December. Beginning yes. of December. So, yeah, so but, the, but the organization did... Uh, um, have a tremendous track record in the November elections in endorsing 71 candidates, 70 of them won. There were some really prominent politicians who accepted our endorsement, people like um, Diane Feinstein and uh, Barbara Boxer and Tim Kaine, who uh, won the uh, Senate seat in a tough fight in, right. in Virginia, yes. amongst others. So uh, this shows, I think, that we are uh, becoming um, uh, mainstream, accepted, and, and that we are making a difference and that um, uh, our endorsement is, is valuable, it's not toxic, and that uh, people who accept our endorsement do very well. So uh, we will be looking to, in the next election in 2010, increase our uh, number of uh, candidates that we endorse slightly, and again, in the next presidential cycle. We think it's very healthy to have a progressive pro-Israel block in the Congress that doesn't automatically go along with everything that the Israeli government does, but actually takes a nuanced position that um, that keeps the pressure up for a two-state solution. And when you're vetting these or uh, arranging these endorsements for these congressional candidates, uh, how they they once you've approached them, they know exactly what it is. What you mean by the two-state solution and, and what J Street's talking about is there, is there still more sort of jostling, or do they? It's it's a clear, defined position. You approach them, they say yes or they say no, and then you go down the list of other campaigns that you're you're endorsing. How does that work? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I wasn't involved in that process, so I, I don't want to get too much into the detail. But I think it's more or less the way you suggest you know there's no pretense on anyone's part they know exactly what we represent and uh, and they have to weigh the implications of accepting um, our endorsement and 71 of them did that and 70 of them won their elections so i think that right. the record really speaks for itself well i uh, c- congratulations on that those are really good outcomes and so now uh, you're working uh, well, I don't know. Are, you're working behind the scenes with the uh, various delegations in the Senate and in the House to uh, support. Now, John Kerry's not going to have any confirmation problems, but uh, Charles Hagel, former senator from Nebraska, is uh, he's having uh, some enormous uh, challenges from Republican senators. What is uh, J Street doing behind the scenes that you can <laughs> mention in community radio uh, to to uh, or what is your disposition first and what are you doing about your disposition in the, the confirmation hearings? You know, even before he was confirmed when his uh, nomination or his probable nomination was leaked, um, uh, his opponents um, began trying to uh, smear his name and to put out distortions of his record, and we were the first group, not just the first Jewish group, but the first group, period, to respond. Before Hegel himself could get organized and mount his own defense, we stepped into that gap and we uh, put out the, the, tr- the first fact sheets to actually put out the, the true um, facts of the situation. We're proud that uh, Senator Hegel spoke at our conference in 2009, and we've um, issued the video of that speech and the transcript of that speech. 
and we've tried in any way that we can to be to be helpful. Um, I think our main role was in those very early days uh, when you had um, some uh, prominent Jewish leaders in America, uh, unfortunately, putting out very misguided and uh, extreme and inaccurate uh, characterizations of some of Hegel's positions. In fact, one of them said that they verged on anti-Semitism, which um, I regard as, you know, a completely absurd charge and devaluing the the meaning of uh, what anti-Semitism right. truly is. So um, we, um, but just this week, we uh, we on Wednesday we hosted a, a, a briefing for the media, uh, including Senator Jack Reed of uh, Rhode Island of uh, of Rhode Island and um, some Jewish veterans and our own president Jeremy Ben Ami to uh, speak in support of Hegel. And so we have been uh, behind him. Uh, we expect that uh, he will be confirmed. And I actually personally don't believe that this is really primarily about Israel. I think it's about Iran. And, and it, Iraq? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, Iraq's in the past, and uh, I think that there's personal baggage between Senator McCain and, and Senator Hagel that I just really don't want to get into. Um, but I think looking forward to the future, I think it's um, the neoconservative wing of the Republican Party, the people that brought us the invasion of Iraq, um, are anxious to bring us uh, uh, military action against Iran. And, and so when they see one of their own, a Republican, take a much more uh, balanced um, and kind of pragmatic position in the great tradition of a foreign policy exemplified by President Eisenhower and by people like uh, Henry Kissinger and by the first President Bush, uh, Bush 41, which was, uh, which was pragmatic which relied on international uh, alliances and, and, and measured responses, um, which did countenance the use of force, but not in an uncontrolled way. So if you look at the first Gulf War, which I covered as a journalist, okay. you, saw us, you saw the United States build a vast international coalition of more than 40 countries to expel, um, backed by the UN Security Council, authorized by resolutions of the UN Security Council to expel Iraqi troops from Kuwait. And once that mission was accomplished, uh, we stopped the war. And so that was a war in which we lost um, a, a tiny fraction, I, I think, a, you know, m- maybe less than a couple of hundred men. Now, to, to compare that to the second Iraq war, where we were bogged down for six or seven long years, where we lost thousands and thousands of men and women, to say nothing of the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who, who were killed, um, is, is, is exactly the kind of comparison that we, that we, should, should, we, should, we should be looking at, because Hegel is an, a, 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 um, a proponent of the first kind of, of military action and the first kind of, of use of diplomacy and measured force, and his opponents are the proponents of the second kind. That's an interesting way to draw that line, too. For those of you who've just joined us, we're listening to Alan Elsner, my guest today. He's the Vice President for Communications at J Street, the progressive voice of American Jewry here uh, in the United States. And we're talking about uh, former Senator Charles Hagel's uh, confirmation process. And he's, uh, Mr. Elsner has divided very neatly the sort of the line between distinguishing uh, the um, the voice of the how the the war was fought in Iraq in with under 41 and how 43 uh, uh, the conserv the neocon um, uh, 
campaign uh, in in the war in Iraq in, in uh, under yes I said under 44's um, leadership there and and to take that pragmatic theme into uh, what we have a little bit more time left um, and or, no I want you to finish what you were going to say about that and then I wanted to uh, I basically have finished oh, okay let's move on let's move okay on. fine well so the the pragmatic uh, aspect now uh, is something which is characterizing what uh, some are saying who have had an opportunity to see the new the uh, Israeli documentary um, called The Gatekeepers. It was uh, made last year, and director Dror Moray is is having screenings. You can you went to a screening uh, yesterday or today, and so uh, I will. I think we're going to have more opportunities to see it. I guess it was just released in Israel this last month, so we're we're going to start to see Israeli actions to this film as well. But it was it was a phenomenal. Uh, uh, effort for the director to get all of the Shin Bet, the living, sh- all living Shin Bet leaders, um, uh, the uh, secret, is it called the secret service of the Israeli um, military? Right. The Shin Bet is the internal security service of Israel, uh, equivalent of the FBI in the United States, and the Mossad would be the external um uh, intelligence service that would be more of the equivalent of the uh, CIA. Okay. So he had uh, the equivalent of six directors of the FBI, so six directors of the Shin Bet who were interviewed. Uh, I think he did about 72 hours of interviews, and they boiled it down into a, a movie that's a little under two hours long. And um, and they go through um, the years of the uh, of the occupation uh, of the West Bank and Gaza, which began in 1967 at the end of the Six Day War, and 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 they look in, in and he looks in detail and he, through the eyes of these directors at how that um, war has been conducted since then, the war against the Palestinian uh, terror, uh, what it has done to Israeli society. And, and and whether that um, war is in fact um, uh, ever going to be won, and and the conclusion of all six, and you have to understand that to be the director of the Shin Bet is not to be a, a you know a liberal or a softy. Nor were they ever in, no, no. no were they ever interviewed before either. Which was a, a marvel too in this film. Right. They've never been out in the public before. So this was a major, it's a major appearance, a major sort of a forum for them, and then what they had to say, as you were saying. Right. So these are tough, tough guys. They've been there at the very front lines of uh, fighting Palestinian terror. And, uh, And all of them come to the same conclusion, which is that Israel really has to end this occupation, that this occupation is uh, demoralizing for Israel, that Israel cannot continue to rule over one and a half billion Palestinians against their will, that this is having a disastrous moral effect on uh, Israeli society itself, and that um, Israeli society is becoming a kind of Shin Bet society, a a kind of um, obsessed with um, um, with the security, with surveillance, with um, a mass arrests, with tough and sometimes brutal interrogations, um, with occasions where the law has been broken and um, and basically um, crimes have been committed, um, where people have been beaten to death in the most savage way, and 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 and, and all for what? You know, uh, one of the directors in in the very last words of of the movie says he just really doesn't think that Israel yet has grasped the idea 
mm. that they can win every single battle and yet still lose the war. Mm. So uh, it's a tough movie, but it's a it's also a, a very courageous movie. I think anyone that cares about Israel should see this movie because it paints um, in the most um, clear light the costs of the occupation for Israel, for Israelis individually and collectively, for the young soldiers of 18 who are barely out of high school and find themselves busting into uh, the homes of Palestinians in the middle of the night um, with their weapons at the ready to arrest men, um, to look into the eyes of their wives and their children and to see the hatred and the fear in, in those eyes and to know what that's doing to those kids, the Israeli kids, as well as the Palestinian kids. It, it's really uh, an eye-opening uh, movie, and I, and I really urge everyone to see it. Well, it's very interesting, and you're talking about uh, importuning upon President Obama before he becomes a lame duck president that you have his back. There are other organizations have his back. It seems like the military, both uh, from the Charles Hagel backgrounds to the military in Israel, they've got Obama's back, too, to work on this two-state solution negotiation process. Yes, I mean, he's going to have wide support, but he's also obviously going to run into opposition. Uh, we know that if this had been easy, it would have been done right. already. Um, it's going to demand uh, courage and leadership from all sides. Um, there is a very powerful uh, uh, group within Israeli society that will oppose this, that is determined to push ahead with settlements. There will be uh, powerful voices in the Palestinian uh, community and in the Arab world at large who will oppose this and who still prefer to uh, to try to uh, wipe out Israel, um, people like Hamas and people even more extreme than them. We know that the Iranians will use whatever influence that they have to make mischief and to stir up trouble and to drive this off course. So I don't have any illusions that this is, this is going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Um, but it, it's necessary to do it because the alternatives are just so much worse. As you said, as more facts are being created in the ground with each new settlement, I mean, the, that's the settlement that was uh, given the go-ahead after the, the vote on the uh, the U.N. resolution on statehood about Palestine, um, that, you know, sending that the, the next bulldozers in. So it's really... Um, it, well, I actually don't think that that will, will, will be built now with no. this new government. I don't think... I think that one has been brought to a stop. Because How? I think one... Well, because I don't think that the money is going to be there for it. Okay. You know, the, whole, the, the, the new coalition is going to be built around the idea of spending money um, on the Israeli middle class and on the Israeli working class and, and not spending it on the settlements. So okay. I really don't, I expect that that will not, uh, I expect that the settlement drive will be slowed down. But there have been periods in the past where it's been slowed down. And you have to realize these people um, who build these settlements, they're persistent. They don't quit. Um, they're very uh, uh, determined and dogged, and they press ahead. And if they come to a temporary t uh, halt, which has happened, you know, numerous times in the past, it happened for ten months in in 2010. They just waited out, and when the halt comes to an end, they resume. So um, I think that we're going to see a slowdown in settlement activity, and I hope we're going to see a speed up in diplomatic activity. Uh, but all of that isn't worth anything unless you actually get to an agreement. Right. And the, uh, uh, there there hopefully are already some back-channel discussions going on to start, you know, getting more familiarity back 
back up and running where uh, higher and higher level negotiations can start to become a process. Just we go back to how, how that's happened. The ANC managed to talk to the National Party. They did it in the back channels. We all, I go back to that model many, many times. So hopefully that's that's been starting to happen ever so informally. And uh, I really appreciate we uh, haven't any more time today uh, to uh, take any more time from your busy schedule on the, the West Coast. Alan Elsner, Vice President of J Street, uh, for J Street Communications, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back after a station break. My next guest will be Rachel Klemick in a pre-recorded interview we did last week. She's the proprietor of Black Market Bakery, that delectable business some of you may already know about. Don't go away. Be right back. Welcome again to Ask a Leader. The guest on this part of my show is Rachel Klemick, uh, owner of the inestimable local black market bakery. <laughs> Ra- Rachel was a student at UCI, an anthropology major, where she finished in 91. And in the course of that time, she had her own jazz show on KUCI. Blues, Lit- actually. Pa- a blues show. Yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> she then, um, amidst other uh, studying and training along the way, she received her certification at the Culinary Institute of America in 2002, where she was the, one of the highest-ranking bakers uh, in her cohort. Later, she put together a business plan for her current business, Black Market Bakery, uh, through a 2003 uh, securing um, building, and then in 2004 launching what we know as the, the, the bakery today. In recent times, she has just expanded her uh, to another location at the camp. We're going to talk a great deal about that today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Rachel Klemick. Thank you, Claudia. I'm glad we can talk today about uh, what was an inspired idea to take what was a, it's a, an, a, a special, special kind of a bakery concept and uh, with lots of bohemian touches, lots of ways of including your clientele in, in expanding our culinary palates with what you call dough. Everything's dough from pasta to croissants. <laughs> and so uh, that h- how you've innovated so many other uh, flavors and textures into this, this dough platform, is it called? We have to say that on a radio media platform. That sounds good. And so... What we are, uh, so we're now uh, going to take stock of how you took a plan of a one location and you decided somewhere along the lines around uh, a year ago, uh, longer than a year ago, you came out with a manifesto. What was the manifesto, Rachel Klemick? Oh my goodness. Um, well, we had been a wholesale business for quite a while. And we thought the Black Market Bakery brand, there was so much fun to be had with it. There was so much, like, sassiness and um, almost the idea of it's okay to eat a cookie. You don't have to feel guilty. It's okay to eat real butter. You don't have to feel guilty. Embrace that. So when we started thinking about a retail concept, we kept grabbing onto this phrase, um, 
creating a conscious moment of indulgence. Oh, that's what I've been feeling all this time without even knowing that's how I <laughs> should have been articulating it. Okay. There you go. Well, the, the idea is we all want a little oasis. Life is hard. I mean, there are bills to pay. Your kids might not be getting A's in school. You've got to deal with taxes and the DMV and your boss. And, and the idea with the retail location is we wanted to create a place that's m- mellow, fun, open, we're not hiding anything here. There are no secrets. It's butter. And we're no mixes. It's just it, it, each ingredient is doing what it wants to do. The chocolate, the sugar, the butter, the flour, the yeast. Um, and taking that and creating products in a location that can offer our guests this conscious moment of indulgence. Yes, we know we're not selling you a salad, but that's okay. We sometimes need to not, you know, feel guilty about what we eat. We need to enjoy it and kind of have a... A break, like a little, a little moment. So, I think that is probably the manifesto of the the retail location. Okay, and the retail location is over at the camp off of Bristol, uh, where there are many sorts of. Uh, not necessarily countercultural, but uh, sort of alternative themed businesses. So, right. uh, was that place? Um, did that? Did you find the place, or did the place find you? It was funny. We were looking, um, we started thinking about basically about a year ago, you know, we really need to get this business going into another dimension. We've, you know, we were ready for a creative challenge. So we started looking kind of all over like Irvine, Tustin, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach. It never even occurred to me originally to look at the camp and the lab because, um, I don't know, I really thought I couldn't afford it. I thought it was a little too grand almost. And Shaheen Sadegi, who developed the lab 20 years ago and then the camp 10 years ago, is known for, you know, handpicking his tenants and finding, you know, interesting independent businesses. So he's not going to put in a Happy Nails or Yogurt Land. Not that those are bad businesses, but, he, you know, he's very focused on, on the independent business. And so originally I was actually looking at another location in Irvine, and we're looking at a place um, close to UCI as well, a couple batting around. And then my real estate broker took us on a tour and took us literally four or five places, and then we pulled up in front of our current location, and it was this aha moment. Ah. You know, it, it, the, the, if, nobody, um, if nobody's familiar with the camp, I'd, I'd love for them to be able to come by, but we're in the space that used to be the bike shop. So it's right on the parking lot. We've got these beautiful, like, ceiling, you know, floor-to-ceiling windows along one whole edge of the building. We've got this amazing um, barrel-vaulted, wood-structured um, ceiling that we left as much open as we could. So It's just this big open space. So when we saw that, you know, then we started negotiating, and of course that took a while. Um, but it just, it just seemed to all click. Wow, you and know. you've got pole position there, so it's really... And I, Now, is there a sign ordinance uh, specific to the property that sort of keeps things low-key, or are people going to find you easily? Um, unfortunately, we, have our, we do a lot of the construction in-house. So we had a contractor that did all the, the building for us in terms of dealing with gas, electric, drywall, you know, ventilation, all that stuff. But um, we've actually done a lot of the detail work, and the sign, I have a design for it. I know what materials it's going to be, but we just haven't had the time yet to actually um, to fabricate it. It's going to be metal. 
and it will be our um, people will have bread logo. So it's a fist with wheat, okay. cl- clutching wheat. Um, we have on the windows, um, it says Black Market Bakery. So hopefully they can see that. But I mean, even the kitchen is open. If you're standing outside in the parking lot and you look into our space, you can see like my pastry chef here, like decorating a cake or finishing off tarts. The sushi bar concept. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of glass. You've been here, haven't you? Oh, yes, I've, yes, 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 of course yeah. I have been. So um, the idea is, you know, it's so open. We're, we want people to feel like they have confidence in the products we make because they see the people making it. Not, it's not like we're taking frozen stuff out of a box. We're making everything from scratch right before your eyes. Right before. And, folks, for those of you who are listening, uh, my guest in this portion of Ask a Leader is Rachel Klemick, the proprietor of Black Market Bakery. And also starring in this radio appearance is the din of the cheerful <laughs> clientele and the happy workers of Black Market Bakery. So that's that's what you're hearing in the background, yeah, folks. Exactly. <laughs> so when you were, were talking, we're going to do a little bit more of the physical, and then we want to talk about some of the, the more um, the abstract, the financial part of the, the, the business plan. But okay. uh, you uh, you decided, uh, though, that, that you weren't going to get that many contractors involved with the, the special finishes inside, so it was largely sweat equity from your husband that uh, fashioned these very contemporary, very... Um, custom kinds of, of, of appointments inside. It's really remarkable. Right, so yeah, that meant you had to do uh, had to delay some of your opening so that uh, everything was going to be done the way you wanted it. Well, and what's funny is it's not completed at all. I mean, it's functional. The kitchen is done, um, but in terms of the display space, there's so much more. We were going to kind of suspend this bread display area right on the other side of this metal wall right below this window where you see our bread bakers working that's where the bread's going to be displayed and that hopefully will be completed in the next week or two so we have more ideas it's it's just i'm not gonna have to do them so we're going to take our time and do it right but right now everything's functional you know the kitchen um, most of the display area. <laughs> yeah, we keep saying like, oh, we're going to make it, be- we're going to change this, we're going to make this better, we're going to improve this. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I had a staff that was ready to get started, and we chose January 2nd as our opening date, so we could just kind of count the whole year, you know, from January 2nd on as, right. as the first year. Anyway. And so, and so uh, right, so while we're, we can not only watch the baking, we can watch the building. Yeah, hopefully every time you swing there's going to be a little something different or, um, you know, things kind of in progress. Right now we have a freezer repair guy who's, like, <laughs> trying to fix our freezer. So there's always something going on. Okay, so that's a good seg into uh, when you decided along the way of your manifesto that you were going to, to use the a special way of financing the expansion of your business. Why don't you tell us about how you decided on Kickstarter and then tell us how Kickstarter worked for uh, helping you build the, okay. the firm. Um, yeah, well, I started out in baking um, with a real laser-like focus on bread. That was always my focus, like when my kids were little, before I went to culinary school um, and even through culinary school, and we learned lots of stuff, but I, I always loved bread production. And we don't have an oven at our current, lo- at our, you know, previous location that we've had since uh, 2004. The original um, location, because yeah, it's original. not previous, it's still in existence. Exactly, it's still in existence. Um, yeah, we still do a lot of production over there, but um, we didn't have an a oven that was really well suited for bread. You need to have steam um, in, a ch- in the baking chamber 
when the bread first goes in to get a nice crust and a nice rise. So we never had access to that technology. So when we started thinking about the retail location, we thought, you know, we really want to have a place where we can crank out lots and lots of bread. And even in fact, you know, at any given day, we have between like six and eight different kinds of loaf breads and rolls in stock. Like we're doing challah yeah. on Fridays, and you know, we've got this great lemon rosemary sourdough. And um, anyway, so that bread oven itself is um, runs over twenty thousand dollars. Now we got. Financing wow. through a community bank um, backed by the SBA for most of our expansion. The Small Business Administration. Exactly. And we worked with an incredible banker who um, just held my hand through this arduous process of gathering documents. <laughs> um, he was incredible. He'd come like, okay, let's find this, let's find this, let's fill this out. Um, but we thought it would be neat because we have built up quite a following over all these years and all these classes and all these farmers markets um, to involve our customers with the process so we made a video um i actually made it my son helped me you know i did the voiceover it's all you know kind of homegrown mm. um so we are asking people to donate money to a kickstarter campaign um to the tune of i think around twenty one thousand dollars um and in in compensation for their donation they would get you know loaves of bread or boxes of cookies and um t-shirts, aprons, like we have chef jackets on the way um, for a certain level of donation, they would get an embroidered chef jacket with their name on it, like with our logo. Those are actually arriving any day. But Okay. Um, so we put that video together, and then we had 30 days to raise that amount of money. Wow. And it was nerve-wracking. I mean, I, I posted it, I think, on a Monday, and I just thought, oh, my God. And I sent, of course, an email out to all our supporters. We have over 4,000 people on our email list. And, you know, I posted it on our Facebook page, which we have, like, I think 3,300 fans right now um, on Facebook. So, you know, I tried to get the word out. And, but the idea of, like, what if no one gives money? What <laughs> if we totally get ignored? I'll feel so, like, publicly shamed, <laughs> basically, like, nobody likes me. But that didn't happen, Rachel, did it? No, it didn't happen. What's the pl plot the lines <laughs> of the way the support developed um, for the people that are always wondering about how businesses grow and, and um, that kind of thing? Well, it's funny. I think the key with Kickstarter, from what I've seen, because we did a lot of research before we, we launched our campaign, was you need to have a customer base already, somebody who knows you and who already kind of cares, hopefully, or wants your product. Because I've seen businesses on Kickstarter where um, they're just kind of out of the blue, I want to do whatever it is, and they don't really have a support base. People aren't Generally speaking, I don't think people are searching on Kickstarter for somebody to donate to. I think usually they go to Kickstarter to donate to someone they already know. Okay. So that's been my kind of advice to people. Um, just build up a following, have a conversation, and then be willing to really put yourself out there. Um, the thing about Kickstarter, if people don't know, is you do not – like if we had raised $20,000 and not twenty one none of those pledges would have come to us. All or nothing, winner it's, take all. It's, yeah, and that's the scary part because <laughs> you're, you know, like we're 50% there and we've got two weeks to go or, you know, we're 70% there and we've got one week to go. And, um, you know, so I kept kind of haranguing and reminding our followers, you know, we need your help. And people donated anywhere from like $5 to, you know, I think we had a couple of $1,000 donations, but most of it was, very, you know, small, you know, manageable amounts, like under $100. 
um, and just a lot of people. Well, what I noticed, and maybe to your credit, Rachel, as a businesswoman, though, is that you, you, you posted sort of the, the spread of the contributions, and it was sort of an equal distribution of, of all the giving categories, wasn't it? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. It was nice. Yeah, we had people, um, and it's funny, the people that come out of the woodwork, like a woman that I had been in grad school with um, in 1992 Ah. was like the one who put us over the top. Oh, wow. And I I literally hadn't seen her since 1993. So she followed us on Facebook, and, you know, we've been corresponding back and forth, and I thought, oh, my God, (laughs) really, Martha, you're amazing, you know. So it's, um, yeah, it's crack up. I mean, it, it, it does help, I think, too, to... For, for me personally to have been in, it, in an area for as long as I have, um, you know, I went to high school and college in Irvine. We left for quite a while, but we came back, and my family's, you know, lived here for a long time. So, you know, we have these kind of cool, um, deeper connections with the community, and they, I was just amazed that they rallied and, and helped us accomplish this and goal. your connections, as you alluded to earlier, too, is that you're at the farmer's markets, you're at the, the Kean Coffee and other coffee shops. Are you going to be pulling those out Are you going, because you're now at retail at the, the, the camp? Um, no, actually quite the opposite. We're actually looking for um, more wholesale accounts. Um, our, our goal in the next quarter, you know, from now until the end of March, I should say, the, through this quarter, is to develop a wholesale line of breads. Oh, okay. Um, but we sell to King Coffee. It's kind of a neat relationship because we are, um, they're our biggest customer I in see. terms of like daily deliveries. We sell to Nordstrom Coffee, um, E-Bars. We sell to Cafe Cito Organico, Mother's Market, the Port Theater, you know, and Fletcher Jones. We have these accounts where we just deliver pastries to them. Um, and then in relation to Kean, we actually sell their coffee here because we, we absolutely love their coffee. Right. And right. so we are a customer of Martin and Karen Diedrich at Kean, and then they are a customer of ours. Okay. And so those are some of those relationships, too. Mm-hmm. For, for people that are paying attention to what, uh, how a bit business model performs and capitalizes on uh, things that are already in place, that kind of a thing. So That's exactly it. Yeah, you, just, you, you stated that very well. So as you've expanded the uh, classes, although perhaps uh, scale down a little bit or put on hold while you uh, can throw yourself into uh, putting those, uh, let's say, not the finishing touches, but the ongoing improvements <laughs> at, uh, at the camp, right. uh, the classes will pick up and everybody can go to Black Market Bakery. I'm going to pull up my, uh, my uh, the Black Market Bakery dot com as that was what it is that's it yeah and so it's a it's a lively website people and then you can always find out what's going on uh, but what we want to include today is what's going on our uh, tonight um, February 5th is going to be one event tell us about that Rachel well um, we actually have a, a really great friend of ours who is the community organizer for Yelp in Orange County named Ryan and he is, has organized um, it's funny. It's kind of almost what, in a way what you're doing right now, Claudia, but it's oh. called um, Meet the Business Owner. Okay. And so it's a Yelp Elite event. I believe it's invite only. Um, but the idea is that um, they, these people RSVP for this event. They come. They talk to me. They ask questions. I demonstrate, you know, making something. I'm not sure what I'm doing yet. I've got to figure that out soon. There's time. <laughs> um, and, and then... Um, and they sample product, and they just get to experience um, our new business here at the camp on a little more intimate level. You know, they get to actually interact, you know, with the staff. And, um, and I think there's actually a moderated discussion. Um, 
like a Q&A section with a, a gal who's a really awesome food blogger. Um, I'm try- I think it's much ado about food, and her name is Minerva Tai. Uh, oh, wow. Min- huh, I remember her last but- name, Minerva. And um, so she's moderating that. So that's on the 5th. And then we're having a grand opening. Yes. You know, you'd think like... Everyone's oh, invited. Well, yeah, you think their grand opening of a business would be on the opening day, but there's always so many kinks to iron out. I mean, obviously, you know, we let people know we're open, but we're having like a kind of a party. Okay. A grand opening party on February 11th, um, which is uh, Another Monday. Tuesday. A Monday, right. The Monday after this Tuesday. Yes. Yeah. And it's um, 5.30 to 7.30. And um, we're actually partnering with Share Our Strength, which is an incredible charity yes. and based in Costa Mesa. Gene Forbeth started, yes. Yeah. And they, they feed, I think, 300 families in Costa Mesa every day. So 15% of our profits for that event, obviously we're going to be sampling a ton of product, but if we do sell anything, um, 15% of our profits on that day will go straight to them. Okay, that's wonderful. And um, I I wanted to give your due with um, getting that word out. Um, I want to just go back, though, Rachel, to the the event that the Yelp is um, uh, soliciting um, followers to come in business. So are you expecting... Uh, other small business owners or the press or are, I mean, is there proprietary information that you're sort of not giving, but sort of giving in that kind of a form? (laughs) You know, I really, it's funny when in doing classes, I've given out probably, you know, every cake recipe we use, scone recipes, tart dough, marshmallows, like a lot of products we make, croissant dough. I've given out the recipe. I'm, I'm not one, I'm not a believer in, you know, people like, oh, they're going to steal my idea because to me it's all in execution. It's all in organization. There's a lot more to it than just the food. I mean, the food has to be amazing, but I think there's so much more to it. So I'm not particularly concerned. I think I would imagine the Yelper um, event will draw people that are, you know, very active on Yelp and they'll want to probably know about the business, the right. design, the products. I, d- I don't even know, to be honest. I'm okay. Not, but I'm not worried about, like, oh, some other baker's going to come and steal my idea for blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, it's happened in terms of uh, some very special ideas. I, and Gustavo Arellano talks about that in Taco USA, that how uh, the whole Mexican fast food was a, r- right there, reappropriated right there on Route 66. And I know um, there's some other um, particular... Um, trying to think in the LA area some uh, very or was it in northern Orange County where the restauranteur r- recognized their entire menu was lifted by a, a, a temporary employee and they they competed in the a nearby catchment area so uh, oh, I, I, I know these things do happen and but but it's but your business plan it, it has a vivaciousness of its own and and a quality that's so superb it, uh, you know if somebody wants to compete with you they're gonna have to get out all the best ingredients to to, to be able to do right, that right and I mean, it is challenging to to make sure you do have a profit margin built in. If you think about, you know, you want to have enough labor so that your guests are well attended. And our our product is very labor intensive. So on the production end of things, you know, one person's efforts, it, it takes a lot of work to, to do everything we do. You know, hand mixing small batches of stuff and making everything from scratch. So if somebody did want to lift an idea, they'd probably have to alter it in such a way, I would think, to make it, you Make know, it more profitable. And even building out a, a, a 
space with a kitchen and a storefront. You're talking in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's not something where someone's just going to like, oh, steal your idea, you know, and make it in their kitchen because you you legally can't do that anyway. So I don't know, maybe I'm fooling myself, but I like to think that, um, you know, we have our own unique personality that shines through. Indeed. And when you're talking about the labor intensive, intensive, intensity of the, um, the actual production there, you were saying at your, your, pre, your real, real opening, January 2, that you had to all consider the whole production protocol had to be newly developed for a whole new structure in which you're operating. Right. Well, we had, was and luckily, you know, we had a good idea about, um, you know, a lot of the product we'd already made, croissants, scones, tarts, you know, all different sorts of confections and cakes. You know, that it was nice. We didn't have to figure that all out from scratch. But in terms of the breads, and we make these pressed sandwiches with our own peanut butter that we grind here or almond butter, um, that was something where we just kind of played around. I had my kids here one day before we opened, and I had bread, and I had all the fillings I thought we wanted to use. And we're like, what, what would this taste like? <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, let's put this together. And then they'd all sample it. And I'd say, what, what about this one? Do we think this would be good? How much of this should we put in the sandwich? <laughs> so literally it was just playing around and kind of fine-tuning it. And then I, I gave it to our production gal, and she, um, she actually wrote a protocol based on that. But, yeah, it's something you just have to kind of figure it out as you go. It was a little, you know, a little challenging. And um, if people have comments, we're always welcome. Um, we'd love to receive those comments because we obviously are figuring it out as we go along. Well, I... I'm so uh, so impressed with the chance that more people are getting to know about the black market bakery product. I, I, I guess as we close down the interview, I wanted to know if you're getting a feel for new clientele that you now are engaged with as a result of the second location. We, we really are. It's, the camp is amazing because if you happen to swing by, especially in the evening, you might it might occur to you, um, oh, everybody here is, you know, 25 and hip and, you know, they all have interesting mustaches and wear funky boots. And, but we have seen an incredible range of customers from all age ranges, all backgrounds. Um, so it's been awesome to, to kind of to see who really comes to the camp. And it's everybody. It really, it's, it's been really refreshing. And it, people wander in just because they see us through the window and they wonder what it is. Yes. And then we do have people um, who've been following us for years, you know, who, who come swing by. So it's, um, we've just been really pleasantly su- surprised at the, um, the great response we've, we've gotten so far here. So we're, we're very happy with our new location. Well, I know that with all that you're go- doing now, that um, you're absolutely breathless, but you're able to compose yourself <laughs> so magnificently. Nobody has a clue how really overextended you are in terms of uh, the sweat equity, the business plan execution, the customer engagement. That uh, I, It's a real treat for you to set aside valuable time of startup to be with us on Ask a Leader today, Rachel Klein. I do have to say one thing, though. Yes, I know Rachel. you're probably going over time, but... Um, the one thing that anybody needs to really understand if they do want to create any kind of business is you cannot do it alone. Okay, good You for have you. to have a, a lawyer to consult with. You ha- need to have an accountant, a good banker. For me, I have a production manager. I have a retail store manager. I've got a pastry chef. I've got some lead bakers. So I'm not here like 
baking bread all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm fine-tuning with them. I'm not here decorating cakes. I'm fine-tuning with them. And my job as the owner is not to be in the kitchen just executing the product, but to be thinking, what's the next product we're going to work on, and how can we expand, and how can we grow? And I think if people are love baking or any industry, their tendency might be to want to be the people in production doing the work right and i think that's been a hard transition for me to go from the person doing the work to the person who's driving the business and i'm still not there yet at all trust me but anyway that's i think it's a good distinction to to bring up because that, that's not some, something most people will tell you well that's very important mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm glad we can uh, <laughs> get we finally could get that now folks be sure to uh, stay uh, put on your calendar uh, the grand opening, the extra grand opening February for 11th. On February 11th, Monday evening from 5.30 to 7.30. And I misspoke. It's actually share ourselves, that's not share our strength. I knew it was SOS. So right, right, right. Share ourselves. I was, I was thinking of that, when you, but uh, that's good. And Gene Forbath will appreciate that. So, uh, well, I hope you get some pretty high yields that day. Um, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be able to make it. I'll be out of town, but I ah. uh, will hear about how that went. And uh, I'll continue to enjoy and savor. I don't have that. The last Last time I interviewed you, I could uh, rattle the the wrapper of my my black market bar, but uh, I uh, I'm can't wait until I can pick up some for my bento for my trip uh, at the farmers market on Saturday. And it, I wish you all the luck in raising dough with raising your dough. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And uh, thank you so Very much, good. Rachel Clemick, for being on Ask a Leader. Rachel Clemick, the proprietor, owner, founder, instigator, visionary of Black Market Bakery. <laughs> All the best to you, Rachel. Thank you so much, Claudia. So thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, Heather McCoy, for substituting for me. Next up is George Rosales with George Had a Hat. And don't forget, Heather McCoy has her show, her music show, later today, 6 o'clock. Thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Bye, all. Quite a tea. Sugar, I remember sugar, not much of a looker.